Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I don't know about you, but I have a long list of books that I think I really should read or that I want to read. It was in this connection that I was particularly glad to learn about Blinkist. What Blinkist does is it takes thousands of best-selling nonfiction books and it distills them down to their most important elements so that you can read or listen to them in under 15 minutes, and you can do it on your phone or your portable device. I listen to Blinkist while I'm working at my computer, doing the kind of thing that really doesn't involve my brain. The Blinkist library is massive. It has 2,500 titles, and they're always adding new ones. There are a lot of classics, you know, for example, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And there are also a lot of Amazon bestsellers on it. For example, there's a book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving. I, I can't say this on the air, but it's a word that starts with F. And then there are a lot of history books that I think that you, as listeners to New Books in History, would be very interested in. For example, there's David Christian's, I'm a big David Christian fan, origin story, a big history of everything. Daniel Ellsberg, you know who Daniel Ellsberg is. He wrote a book called The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner, which is fascinating. I listened to that on Blinkist. And then there are a lot of biographies. I really like listening to biographies on Blinkist. Alexander the Great by Philip Freeman. Genghis Khan by Jack Weatherford. Leonardo da Vinci by Walter Isaacson. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for the NBN audience. If you go to Blinkist.com slash new books, you can start a free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash new books to start a free seven-day trial. You can cancel any time. Blinkist.com slash new books. And they will sign you up, and you can find out whether this is something that you would enjoy. I know that I enjoy it, and I highly recommend it to you. I hope you enjoyed the following interview. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Patrick Fulangshan about his biography of the first president of the Chinese Republic, entitled Yuan Shikai, A Reappraisal. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me today. Well, uh, thank you for uh, agreeing to join us today. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Oh, my name is Patrick Sham. Uh, I'm a professor teaching Chinese history, East Asian history, and uh, of course, uh, world history at Grand Valley State University in Michigan. You are obviously uh, are a professor who specializes in the subject, but what led you to write a biography of Yuan Shikai in particular? Uh, Yuan Shikai was a very important historical figure in modern China because he symbolizes uh, the transition from uh, empire to republic. However, in the past 100 years, only one biography uh, was published on him. That was published in 1961. Uh, almost 60 years ago. So there is an urgent need to write another critical, interpretive, uh, analytical biography of Yuan Shikai in a new century for the new readers. 
It's surprising that there's been so little done about him, given both his importance and the controversy surrounding him. And one of the things that you do in your book, I noticed, is you really point to how the interpretations of him have really evolved over the past century since his death. Yes, indeed. Um, uh, His image in Chinese literature, Chinese culture, and Chinese uh, history has uh, had ha, have been very negative ever since his death in 1916. However, uh, ever since Deng Xiaoping's reform since 1978, particularly uh, since uh, 1990s, uh, the Chinese began to value uh, his uh, contribution to Chinese history uh, in uh, late 19th century and early 20th century. So indeed, uh, there was a big change uh, in terms of his uh, image in the past 100 years, particularly the change that took place in the past 30 years. Hmm. Perhaps we should begin by talking a bit about who Yuan Shikai was and by looking at his uh, early years, his childhood. What were his uh, beginnings and, and how did he start out in, in public life? Uh, Yuan Shikai was born in 1859 uh, in Xiangcheng, Henan province. And uh, his family was an elite family uh, because uh, that family produced a lot of uh, bureaucrats for the Chinese empire, the last empire, Qing empire. So uh, he benefited from uh, uh, this kind of social political network for his uh, future career. So, uh, however, uh, he uh, didn't go through uh, the normal channels as many Chinese uh, did at that time because there was a civil service examination for any intellectual to go through in order to learn a job in a government. And he didn't do that. And uh, he rather uh, joined the army and uh, uh, became a commissioner in Korea and then uh, became uh, uh, bureaucrats of Chinese empire in the late 19th century and early 20th century. So his beginning uh, was uh, a member of elite family. And uh, that indeed uh, is a very important uh, uh, social network for him uh, to go through in the future. It was a very interesting uh, uh, career path for him. And I was thinking about it as I was reading it, when you contrast that with the traditional career path for leadership in China, outside, of course, being the emperor uh, himself, which is you would take the exams and you would rise up through the imperial bureaucracy. And Yuan Shikai didn't do that. He had this rather uh, different career path, which took him through the military. And yet it seems that given the events that took place in the late 19th and early 20th century, in some ways that made him better prepared for dealing with the challenges that China was facing during that time than if he had gone through the more traditional route of learning the Confucian classics and uh, passing the exams and ascending that route, which had been in place for 1500 years. Yes, uh, that's a good point indeed. Uh, the civil service examination system started uh, uh, written once, started uh, during the Sui Tang Dynasty almost uh, um, uh, 13, 14 centuries ago. So that it was a channel for Chinese empire to select talents to fill uh, the v- vacancies uh, in the government. So uh, uh, one uh, Western scholar even termed this uh, examination system as uh, literacy. That means the scholars rule over the empire. Indeed, 
need. If we study uh, the Chinese imperial rule from Sui Tang Dynasty down to Qing Dynasty, you can find uh, a large group of uh, talented scholars ruling different levels of governments. However, uh, the civil service examination uh, narrowly focused on the classic works, uh, Confucian classic works. So there is no uh, emphasis of, to science, uh, technology, mathematics, and uh, so forth. So in late 19th century, the Chinese began to blame that system for uh, China's problems. So that's why eventually it, 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 it was abolished in 19. So Yuan Sakai didn't go through that channel. Instead, he uh, went uh, through uh, the channels of uh, army, foreign service, uh, then uh, training a fresh army. So his uh, path was very different from majority, overwhelming majority of Chinese bureaucrats at that time. But uh, as I just said, uh, his own path was very unique. And uh, uh, when he uh, was walking through this path, uh, he uh, uh, gained experience in running uh, the, uh, the administration, running the, the government, in uh, uh, training the army. He got a rich uh, experience that enabled him to be a very talented bureaucrat, or, uh, probably uh, better than many uh, successful candidates uh, who uh, went through uh, the civil service examination. I was also thinking about another aspect of this very practical education he received, which was in dealing with China's place vis-a-vis -vis the other powers. And I felt that really started to come out in his uh, time in Korea. And I was wondering if we could perhaps delve a bit more deeply into that period of his life. How does he end up in Korea and what role does he play in Korea during that time there? Oh, uh, Korea, uh, for a thousand years, was a tributary state of the Chinese Empire. So that means uh, Korea uh, needed the Chinese uh, imperial protection and uh, uh, needed Chinese uh, imperial endorsement. And every year or every other year, the king of Korea would send a mission to Chinese capital to present a gift to Chinese emperor. That means a tribute. And uh, in return, certainly they receive more tribute from Chinese emperor. This is a special arrangement between China and uh, uh, its neighbors, uh, such as uh, Korea, Vietnam, and several other Asian uh, states nearby. So uh, those uh, small states uh, never claim to be empire. Um, so they recognize Chinese emperor as their emperor. So this is like an informal empire for uh, 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 for China. And uh, in this way, uh, China uh, influenced those uh, neighbors, uh, Korea, Vietnam, and several other states in Southeast Asia. So uh, uh, the reason why Yuan Sakai was in Korea was that uh, there was rebellion, uh, there was a coup d'etat in uh, Korea in 1882. So uh, he just went along with uh, his army and, uh, uh, and he was there uh, to crush uh, the coup d'etat. And uh, uh, once again, in 1884, uh, he uh, crushed another uh, coup d'etat. So uh, the two 
uh, uh, moves enable him uh, to build a reputation and uh, those uh, two uh, events also enable him uh, to uh, gain uh, uh, footing in uh, in the foreign mission so that's why he became uh, uh, imperial uh, commissioner uh, on behalf of Chinese Empire in Korea, working for the benefit of the Chinese Empire to strengthen the traditional tributary relationship between the two uh, uh, countries. So Korea, of course, was independent, but uh, Yuan Sky uh, in Korea tried to strengthen the traditional tributary relationship in order to uh, prevent the powers of penetration, invasion, and aggression, particularly from Japan. So uh, he did a very good job uh, for those 10 years. However, uh, in the year 1894, uh, the first Sino-Japanese war started. So uh, basically, uh, ultimately, I would say that uh, his mission failed. I was thinking that his experience in dealing with the Japanese in Korea probably hammered home to him that importance of having a modern, for lack of a better word, westernized military. To what degree uh, did his uh, involvement, his experience in Korea mark him out as somebody that the imperial government wanted to put in charge of that modernization product project after the first Sino-Japanese War? Oh, very good point. Uh, as a matter of fact, Korea was a testing ground for Yuan Sakai to experiment uh, many of his projects for modernization. For example, he trained a modern army for Korean king. So that could be seen as the first step for him as military commander to train the first Chinese army uh, after uh, Sino-Japanese war. And uh, he helped uh, Korea to implement many policies uh, by influencing the monarch, uh, the government, and the Korean people. And uh, he also promoted uh, the, the, the economic uh, uh, relationship between China and Korea. So I would argue that Korea was a testing ground for Yuan Sukai's future career. And it was in Korea that he gained rich experience. And, um, and uh, he would carry on uh, the legacy to his future career in China after he returned to China in the year 1894. So how, what exactly does he do in terms of modernizing the Chinese military? Is it a widespread modernization or is it more focused on building something from the ground up? Oh, that's an excellent question. Uh, he uh, got uh, uh, the job to train a Chinese uh, army in the year 1895, soon after uh, the first uh, uh, Sino-Japanese War ended. So that it was a first modernized army. So why uh, uh, I use uh, the word modernized? Because uh, he equipped uh, his army with Western uh, military uh, equipment. He invited uh, a German and uh, even one Norwegian uh, military instructor to come over by paying them a high salary to train uh, this army uh, in Xiaozan, which is not far from Tianjin, not far from Beijing. And uh, he was there for almost four years. So during those uh, four years, he indeed uh, trained this uh, first 
Chinese modern army. And he welcomed uh, many uh, uh, Western uh, diplomats and Western uh, uh, military commanders to come over to uh, observe uh, his uh, military uh, uh, training. And many of the Western uh, uh, military commanders praised him for being uh, the father of uh, the first Chinese army, modernized army. One of the things that I noticed when I was reading that section was that his role in training those men seems to have won them a considerable amount of loyalty. And this gets to something that we'll probably address a little bit later uh, in uh, the podcast about uh, this perception of him as of, of, of Yuan uh Sakai as, as a warlord. But I was thinking, to what degree does, uh, what were some of the um, things that he did as during this period that really marked him out in terms of moving on? I mean, was, was he just popular with his men? Was he winning their esteem? Or was he also uh, winning the approval of the uh, government in Beijing as well? Oh, excellent question. And, um, and the loyalty uh, ultimately should be given to the emperor uh, in the imperial period, period uh, before the, uh, the collapse of Qing Empire in 1912. So all people leaving uh, the empire should be loyal to the emperor without exception. Uh, the soldiers under Yuan Zikai should pay their loyalty to the emperor. And from the primary sources, you can see that he emphasizes that. However, he implemented a strict discipline. So uh, in that way, he built a very strong bond with his uh, soldiers. He had a very good memory. He, know, he knew uh, the names of the soldier. Uh, at that time, uh, the size of the military was not uh, very uh, large, only probably six, 7,000 men, that's it. So uh, he did a very good job to train them. And uh, he uh, 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 even uh, wrote books um, uh, for uh, instructing uh, the soldiers to be uh, modernized troops. So um, in the long run, however, uh, those army, uh, indeed, uh, after collapse of the empire, uh, they were loyal to him, indeed. So uh, that is the power base for his future career, uh, which is called uh, the Beiyang uh, clique. And that's a clique we'll be returned to because you talk about how it plays its political role after uh, 1911 that is both uh, important and also underutilized. What was it just his uh, success as a uh, military reformer that marked him out for his period of uh, governorship that followed, or were there uh, other f- uh, factors at play as well? Oh, Yuan Sky was a, a talented, uh, versatile man. His experience is, is not restricted to military. Indeed, he trained the first modern army in Xiaozan. And later on, he became a governor of, uh, of Shandong province. Later on, became a governor general of Zili province. So uh, he uh, implemented uh, many of his progressive uh, policies and mayors in those two provinces. And when he uh, accepted uh, as uh, 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 a governor, he, when he accepted governorship, those two provinces were ruined by rebellions, foreign uh, invasions. But he did a very good job by turning those two provinces in, into model provinces throughout the, the, the Qing Empire. So uh, 
uh, in uh, with that we can argue that his uh, ex, uh, his uh, uh, legacy is not uh, only restricted to military field but also in his administration in his official uh, management in his uh, economic reform uh, cultural advancement and many industrial development and many many others this period of his life is also where you start getting into some of the controversies. And I was thinking, for example, his uh, handling of the Boxer Rebellion. And I, I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate upon that a little bit, because I, I felt it was an episode in your book that really uh, highlighted a lot of the tensions that were played, both in terms of the politics of the time and in terms of that uh, subsequent reputation that uh, was oftentimes seen, often unfairly, as being very negative. Um, yes, indeed. In the past, uh, probably uh, decades, ever since uh, his death, the Chinese people condemned him for suppressing the boxer uprising. The boxers were illiterate peasants. Uh, they were motivated by uh, their patriotism, indeed, because of foreign aggression and invasion into China. They simply targeted the foreigners without a discrimination, without any clear policy. They simply kill a lot of foreigners, including missionaries and merchants and travelers. So this is a typical form of uh, xenophobic nationalism. So Yuan Sikai uh, took uh, the position as uh, uh, governor in Shantung. The first thing he need to do is to suppress box uprising. He did. He killed many, maybe many thousand uh, boxers in his province. That's why boxer moved to Zili province instead of Shandong. Shandong became very peaceful under his governorship because his suppression of the box uprising. So uh, uh, after so many decades of uh, uh, condemnation against the Yuan Zikai in terms of suppressing box uprising, uh, in the past uh, years, uh, just uh, recently, some scholars began to press him for uh, 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 pacifying land, um, uh, maintaining stability of the province, and uh, by uh, uh, building uh, a relationship with Germans, because Germans uh, colonize um, one part of the Santum Peninsula. And uh, so that's why uh, after two years of his governorship, uh, Shantung was a peaceful, peaceful world. Uh, if you examine another nearby province like uh, Zili or Henan or Sanxi, oh, those provinces were uh, damaged by uh, 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 foreign uh, expedition forces. So he did a good job in Shantung. So uh, that's why uh, 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 the suppression of uh, Boxer Uprising was assessed differently uh, uh, in the past 100 years. Yeah, I was thinking because, as you point out, though, that his success came at a price, and the price was he was being condemned by a lot of these nationalists as being a lackey of the foreigners. And it, it, it shows this uh, – I thought it did a nice job of illuminating this uh, reputational uh, – uh, tightrope that he that he's walking, where to to be uh, successful in, in in many respects, oftentimes opened him up to these charges that he was you know serving foreign masters, in, in, in which uh, you know was was a you know which as you explain is you know part of this environment in China at the time, but at the same time, it, it, how so, since then we've really 
there's this appreciation that you know he's being he was doing his job as, as governor to deal with an uprising that was not you know that was in many respects challenging the imperial regime as much as it was the foreigners. Yeah, good point. Uh, uh, the people labeled him as a lackey of uh, imperial powers, mainly because he reached accommodation with uh, the Germans. The German colonized the Qingdao area. Uh, that is uh, one of the most beautiful cities in China and, uh, and built a colonial authority over there. So uh, that does not mean that Yuan Sukai surrounded to Germans. He uh, deployed his troops around Qingdao uh, from many different sides. The Germans uh, cannot uh, uh, make any bold move on the Shandong Peninsula. At the same time, he suppressed a box uprising. Uh, I, I don't think he surrounded to German, but he prepared uh, for any German invasion in that way. He uh, indeed uh, make, uh, made Sandong a peaceful world. So was that uh, evidence to show he was lucky of uh, imperial powers? Uh, probably not so. And uh, he prepared for the war uh, against the German. But um, uh, eventually uh, there was peace. And um, uh, for that, uh, in recent years, the Chinese scholars began to praise him for st- uh, stabilizing the province at the same time, enforcing a lot of progressive policies over there. Could you elaborate a little on some of the progressive policies that he came to be associated with? What was he doing in, in terms of trying to change China? Uh, uh, during his uh, governorship, he, uh, uh, for example, implemented uh, many progressive policies. So one of them uh, uh, was uh, his uh, promotion of modern education. And uh, he tried to build a Western-style uh, education system uh, in China, first uh, in Shandong. And then uh, he built uh, the first university, provincial university in the whole of China. That evolved into uh, Shandong University today. So that's one of them. He promoted uh, industry over there. He uh, also uh, uh, implemented his um, policy to uh, make uh, Chinese government and the Chinese uh, uh, government uh, government officials more efficient. And uh, he built uh, one academy to train officials to learn about uh, Western learning. That means science and the Western uh, uh, judicial system, Western uh, 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 even language, and the Western political system. So in that way, uh, he uh, tried to open up uh, China to uh, uh, to the West. So uh, those should be seen as uh, progressive. And indeed, many scholars today uh, view those as progressive policies. Were they uh, influential in terms of his selection as an imperial minister after his time as a governor general? Or was it uh, his military role? Or was it a combination of both? Oh, uh, uh, his uh, achievement in uh, Sandong province certainly was a factor for him uh, to be chosen as uh, governor general of Zili and also Beiyang minister. So in uh, those positions, after 1901, uh, we can say that uh, he became a state leader. So um, uh, indeed, uh, his uh, feats, his achievements uh, in Shandong Peninsula, in Shandong province, uh, enable him to land the higher job in, uh, in, in the future. So, yes. What role did he play in the uh, in, in in the 
imperial government during that period that he was uh, serving in Beijing? Wow. Uh, he uh, was a uh, uh, foreign uh, minister, uh, which uh, 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 the foreign ministry was built just a few years ago to handle foreign affairs. I don't think uh, he achieved a lot in that position. He was in that position uh, shortly, but he was one member of uh, the Junjitsu Military Affairs Council. Uh, in the West, we simply call it a council. So that council is uh, is uh, the, the highest organ of government during the Qing Empire. He was one member of that. That means during later Qing Dynasty, he made a lot of uh, uh, decisions along with many other council members. So he was one of the state leaders uh, in Le Qing dynasty. You, you mentioned that his uh, time as the foreign minister was fairly short. Uh, what led it to come to an end? Oh, he was uh, kick, kicked out from the government in early 1909. Uh, look, Qing Empire was uh, ruled by the Manchu. Okay, the Manchu uh, were ethnic group from Manchuria, from northeastern China. They uh, conquered China in the year 1644. They ruled over China for almost three centuries, and this is uh, the the last page of the Qing Empire. And Yuan Shikai was not Manchu; he was a Han Chinese. So, uh, in a late stage of the empire. The empire encountered a lot of problems, economically, politically, and many, many other issues. One of the uh, problems was uh, anti-Manchu revolutionary movement led by Sun Yat-sen from overseas, from the south. So uh, there is uh, a distrust between Manchu and Han Chinese. So that's why in 1909, early 1909, so Yuan Shikai was a sect. He was a kick out of the government. He retired from uh, the government. He lived ever since in his uh, uh, home province, Henan province. So during, how does he go from being retired to becoming uh, provisional president of China in a matter of just a few months? Yeah. Um, he was kicked out uh, in uh, early 1901. And uh, he uh, uh, came out after 1911 revolution. It's a matter of almost uh, three years. Uh, during those three years, uh, he uh, lived, uh, as, uh, in his words, as a recluse in uh, Anyang, uh, a northern Henan province, which is not far from Beijing. And um, he still uh, maintained uh, contacts with many officials. And uh, many uh, Chinese uh, expected him uh, to re-rise as, uh, uh, as an official in the government because he's talented, he has experience, he was reasonable, he was rational, and uh, he, uh, most importantly, accumulated um, rich experience in the past decade. So indeed, uh, after uh, the breakout of uh, 1911 revolution, um, the Qing government invited him uh, to be back. Uh, his job was to suppress the revolution. So how does he go from being tasked with suppressing the revolution to, in a sense, leading it? <laughs> 
Right, that is a very、uh, interesting question. He was invited. He was ordered to be a、uh, uh, governor general of Huguang, that is、uh, in the Hubei province,、uh, where the revolution、uh, revolution started. Uh, an uprising uh, occurred uh, on October the tenth, nineteen eleven, which started nineteen eleven revolution, and Yuan Shikai was assigned with the job to suppress revolution. But、uh, the issue is, uh, um, uh, he was out of the government for three years. He certainly he demanded、um, the support from、uh, imperial government, and uh, he uh, also uh, have some other demands for his military operation as well.、Uh, when those demands were satisfied, he went to the front. Indeed,、uh, he ordered his troops to attack revolutionary. He took over several regions uh, in uh, 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 Wuhan area, such as Hankou and Hanyang, but、uh, to cross Yang River Valley. To attack Wuchang was a very hard job. So uh, uh, also he sacrificed a lot of soldiers in those two battles. So uh, he uh, cannot venture into、uh, Wuchang by crossing Yang River Valley. So that's why he began to negotiate、uh, with uh, the revolutionary. So that negotiation lasted for many months, and、uh, eventually, through this kind of negotiation. Um, the revolution、uh, tended to be, as uh, uh, Chinese call it, bloodless revolution. Unlike revolution in Russia or in France, which、uh, were very bloody,、uh, Chinese revolution in 1911 and 1912、uh, tended to be bloodless. Indeed,、uh, people shed blood in、uh, Han, Kou, Hanyang, but、uh, the future negotiation、uh, peacefully settled. Uh, the problem that means、uh, the empire、uh, collapsed by、uh, a peaceful abdication, and、uh, a republic would be built. In this kind of a process,、uh, Yuan Shikai at first supported the Qing Empire from the primary sources. We can、uh, find that. Eventually, however,、uh, he became the first uh, 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 president of China、uh, through this kind of political compromise and peaceful negotiation. So. Initially, as you explain, he's a provisional president. What does he do during that time as the provisional president, and to what degree does it,、uh, in effect,、uh, shape the emergence of this new republic? Oh, excellent question. Yeah, from uh, 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 the the time when the imperial court abdicated in early nineteen twelve. To, 19, to uh, later 1913,、uh, uh, he served as a provisional president, but he was elected. Chen、um, uh, Yersan's uh, 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 provisional government in Nanjing、uh, had a senate. According to、uh, the rules set by Chen Yersan,、uh, the the future、uh, provisional president would be elected by senate. By、uh, the legislature, and、uh, uh, Yuan Shikai was elected by that body, and then、uh, he was empowered by uh, uh, the, the last uh, uh, the royal uh, family to organize、uh, a republic. So、uh, this is a very unique but a strange 
political compromise. In this kind of a very special uh, milieu, Yuan Zikai became the provisional president of China. So what did he do in the, in that one year and a half? He did a lot. He tried to unify the country. He tried to implement a lot of progressive policies. He tried to promote education. He tried to uh, uh, seek uh, a further political reconciliation with revolutionary, with many other different factions. and um, But a uh, second revolution broke out in the summer of 1913. He crushed the revolution. So uh, uh, later on, uh, 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 after he became uh, president in later uh, 1913, he even outlawed his rival uh, political party, that's the Nationalist Party. And the next year, he even disbanded the Congress so um, uh, uh, he did a lot during his uh, uh, provisional presidency. Uh, many could be seen as progressive, but at the same time, uh, he tried to uh, uh, consolidate uh, his power, and uh, which was condemned by uh, many historians. One of the things you do in this section of the book that I thought was very illuminating is you describe the, the context, how when Yuan Sakai comes to power, he's described as the George Washington of, uh, of China. And, and, it, and that's something I think that gets to both his military background and this expectation of the role he's going to play. And I was especially struck by a parallel that, that, that you don't really stress uh, in, in the book, but it's there, which is how uh, like – George Washington, Yuan Sakai initially doesn't associate with political parties. He has that attitude of how he is the president of all of China and cannot really be seen as being a faction of it. And yet, as you point out, in many ways, that is a weakness that is that contributes to a lot of his problems for uh, his time as the uh, chief executive of China. Uh, uh, when he uh, became a provisional uh, president of uh, China in early 1912, both North, uh, which formerly was under control of the imperial court, and the South, which was under the influence of the revolutionary led by Sun Yat-sen. So in, uh, uh, when the uh, uh, imperial abdication occurred, both in the South, held Yuan Zikai as a Chinese George Washington. Many primary sources uh, uh, contain uh, the, that kind of title. And uh, people uh, believe that he would be the man uh, to rebuild the Chinese uh, society, uh, to uh, defend the Chinese Republic, and he would have uh, served as a Chinese George Washington. So uh, that is uh, uh, the expectation of the people uh, at that moment in early 1912. In the next one year and a half, uh, uh, particularly in the next one year, very few people condemn him. And the people try uh, uh, to be optimist, uh, optimistic about the future of China. They believe that this is the first democracy. This is the first republican system. People are very happy with that. And all power players are very happy with that situation. And so uh, the, I, from reading many uh, primary sources, uh, I cannot find many negative uh, uh, words about Yuan Sakai. People uh, had a very uh, high hope uh, for his presidency, but uh, eventually he let people down, unfortunately. What brought about that shift in terms of his declining popularity and his growing alienation? 
Uh, his uh, 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 policy to concentrate power in his hands, particularly uh, in uh, uh, 1915, uh, began to draw criticism. And uh, in particular, <clears throat> his uh, efforts to restore an imperial system uh, in early 1916. Wow, that was condemned by uh, many Chinese. And uh, the image began to shift from uh, positive to negative, I would say, that happened in 1915, and uh, particularly in early 1916. So uh, during his uh, first few years, many people supported him. And uh, the only political party that uh, probably didn't uh, cooperate with him was the Nationalist Party, uh, the party led by uh, Sun Yat-sen, and uh, by uh, future, uh, certainly, uh, leader uh, uh, Yuan, uh, no, 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 Chiang uh, uh, Kai-shek in 1920s, uh, certainly, uh, that uh, happened uh, long after uh, Yuan Zikai's death. So uh, there is a, a shift. I think uh, the shift occurred in later 1915 and early 1916. Why did he undertake a step that ended up being so alienating of, 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 uh, for him in terms of his position and, and one that ultimately created so much stress for him that it uh, likely contributed to his death? Uh, the one uh, reason for uh, his uh, concentration of power uh, according to, to some uh, scholars' interpretation, was uh, his lack of uh, national revenue. So that's why he had to borrow money from foreign banks in order to live. So that is a tragedy for him as uh, the leader of, uh, of China. So he tried to levy tax, but uh, local uh, military uh, leaders and local officials sometimes didn't contribute anything to his government. Furthermore, uh, this is a continuity of Chinese imperial decay. And uh, the Chinese economy uh, at that time was in very bad shape. And uh, when he uh, served as a provisional uh, president of China, the total income for his government, according to one source, was only 10% of that, of the Qing Empire. Think about that, without concentration of power. So how can he get revenue? He cannot live on a foreign loan forever. So um, um, uh, he, uh, according to some scholars' interpretation, need to concentrate power, but um, that meant resistance. And it's not easy to be the leader of China at that time. Concentration of power is one thing, and you have this good description in the book explaining how Thinking of him as uh, applying the word dictator is probably more than than uh, is 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 really warranted in, in in the Western conception of it. Why does he decide to take that step to actually try to establish a new emperorship, and why does it fail? Um, some scholar used uh, dictatorship to portray his rule over China. But uh, if you compare uh, his uh, uh, rule with the future Chinese leader like uh, Chiang Kai-shek or Mao Zedong, probably his uh, rule was not uh, a dictatorship. So that's why I use the words uh, centralism to portray his uh, uh, political maneuvers. And uh, why he crowned himself as emperor, that's a very good question. Uh, there was uh, uh, like a movement in 1915, particularly in the summer of 1915, 
led by Yangdu, a very important uh, uh, official in the government and uh, very talented uh, uh, scholar. He studied in, uh, in Japan and returned to China as a high-ranking official. He launched this kind of movement to restore uh, imperial system. He has a belief that republican system doesn't work for China because Chinese have a long tradition of imperial rule and China didn't uh, get used to uh, Western-style democracy. Democracy is good, but the republican system is good. But China at this moment cannot simply be a republic, cannot simply be a democracy. So that's why Yang Du believed that China should be a constitutional monarchy with a monarch ruling the country, but he has no power. And then uh, the real power would be in the hands of uh, the prime minister. So this is uh, another kind of democracy. And Yang Du uh, tried to build this kind of uh, constitutional monarchy in China. He was uh, driving force for Yuan Sikai's uh, restoration of imperial uh, system. And his son certainly wanted to, to be the, the, the next monarch. His son, uh, uh, Yuan Keding, support that too. So uh, some foreign uh, uh, foreigners also support Yuan Sikai's uh, uh, maneuver for being the emperor. And uh, they believe that China was uh, 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 not ready uh, to be a democracy. China was not ready to be a republic. So uh, there is a, a, a very uh, unique uh, social, political uh, milieu uh, that gave uh, Yuan Sikai the chance to crown himself as emperor. Uh, how successful was that effort? Oh, that uh, was a total failure. He uh, uh, proclaimed to be emperor uh, on uh, uh, New Year Day, uh, 1916. But uh, a nationwide uh, uh, anti-Yuan war started. And uh, that war started in Yunnan province, spread out to Sichuan, to uh, Hunan, to uh, several other provinces. So Yuan Sik has sent an uh, army to suppress them, but uh, not very successful. So uh, at the same time, uh, his restoration of uh, monarchy uh, drew criticism from uh, many groups uh, inside China and outside uh, China, particularly from uh, overseas Chinese communities. So in such uh, of, uh, a protest, a nationwide protest, and a nationwide civil war, so he abdicated in March uh, 1916. So his uh, interior endeavors uh, totally failed. He dies just a few months later from these illnesses that are likely exacerbated by the strain of, of, of dealing with all these crises. And as you've already explained, he has this long-standing uh, negative historical reputation. What would you say is his, with the benefit of, of, of time and, and the reassessment that, that it's been taking place, what was his true legacy as uh, the leader of China? Uh, there are many legacies left by uh, uh, by Yuan Sikai. So uh, one of the most important legacies is that ever since uh, he's a failure in restoring uh, uh, the monarchy, so nobody in the future dare to to do that again. So Chiang Kai-shek, uh, the future leader of China, was more powerful than him. 
and uh, he uh, never intended to be emperor. And Mao Zedong was more powerful, but he dared not to call himself the emperor. So that is one legacy. And uh, other legacy Yuan Sikai left uh, to China was his uh, modernization endeavors in his uh, previous uh, decades uh, uh, positions as uh, officials in the Qing Empire. And um, today, people begin to highlight his contribution to China, to Chinese national uh, 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 modernization, to Chinese uh, 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 national advancement. So in terms of economic development, industrial uh, uh, improvement, uh, educational uh, 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 advancement, and in many, 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 many fields, he contributed a lot to China. So uh, certainly, uh, uh, he built the first ar- modern army, and uh, those now uh, were all seen as his uh, positive legacies. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before, before we go, could you tell us what you're, you're working on now? Oh, uh, throughout my uh, scholarly life, in the past uh, 30 years, uh, I just focused on Chinese uh, transition from empire to republic around the 1911 revolution. I wrote uh, uh, many articles and uh, co-authored books and also wrote uh, a couple of uh, monographs. So this is the second monograph in English. And I wrote the first one, uh, which was published uh, about four years ago. That explores the immigration settlement uh, in the uh, uh, Chinese frontier region. So that was a part of the transition between empire and uh, republic as well. So in the future, I uh, will continue to explore the transition of China from uh, empire to republic by selecting several important uh, 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 topics. Uh, One of the topics uh, right now I'm working is uh, Chinese new cultural movement, which started in 1915 uh, during uh, Yuan's presidency. And uh, this uh, new cultural movement would significantly impact the Chinese mentality, uh, culture, education, and the Chinese pursuit for uh, modernity. And um, uh, I will uh, focus on that in the next uh, a few years. Well, it sounds like a great project. I wish you the best of luck with it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Patrick Shen, thank you for taking some time from your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Oh, thank you for having me today. You have a nice day too. <laughs>